Well, good morning, Vaughn Forest Church. I am really, really glad uh, to be back with you. This is my third time here, and I just want you to know that I have really enjoyed and appreciated the time that I've had with you. Uh, I'm grateful because today uh, we're moving into our third week of the Battle for Your Mind sermon series, and I want to remind you um, of the big idea that we've had for this whole sermon series, and, um, and it's this. Remember this, your mental and emotional health have a direct impact on your spiritual health. Did you hear that? Your mental and emotional health have a direct impact on your spiritual health. And I want to just state for a moment, this will come to bear a little bit later too, um, of why that is. Because when you, you've got to think about this, when God created us, when he created man, when he created woman, created us in his image, but he created us to be entire whole, integrated people. So you are a whole person. Now sin has marred some of that, it's distorted some of that, but you still are that person. So that's why when we talk about emotional and mental health having a direct impact on your spiritual health, it's because you're one person and you can't help but be one person. And it's the same thing even with our bodies, with, with our physical makeup, that all of these things are just kind of intertwined in and with each other. We were designed that way. That's the way God made us. And so it stands to reason that your mental and emotional health would have a direct impact on your spiritual health. Now, as we move forward, think about just quick reminder. A couple of weeks ago, Chad preached the sermon on living with anxiety. Last week, we looked at overcoming shame. And today, we're going to talk about battling busyness. And the main passage of scripture that we're gonna look at this morning is Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. So if you have a copy of God's word, you can take it, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 11. That's where we're going to be today. To be perfectly honest with you, I feel pretty unqualified to preach a sermon on battling busyness, um, considering that my current job, like my day job that I have at this very moment, has me on the road uh, from Birmingham all the way down to lower Alabama for 55 to 65 hours a week. And that doesn't include roughly an hour of commuting to and from work every day. At this moment, as you're looking at me, you're seeing me as the busiest that I've ever been. And consequently, I'm more tired than I've ever been. If anybody asks me how I'm doing these days, you, you probably know how this goes. If somebody says, hey, Adam, how are you doing? Of course, I'm going to say I'm good or I'm fine. But I'll also follow it up kind of like, oh, man, and I'm just really, really busy. Right? Does anybody ever answer that question that way? Maybe you thought or said at one point this last week, our schedule is just crazy right now. We're just a busy people. All of us are busy with our own stuff. And listen, we live in a culture that puts a premium on performance and production. It, it pushes you to produce. Even in our relationship with Jesus, some of us live in guilt, feeling like we ought to be doing more. 
And you know this, whether it's, whether it's your schedule, whether it's your job, whatever it is, whether even if it's your relationship with Jesus, the pressure that we can put on ourselves to perform in order to receive some kind of approval or to make up for something, it can just wear us down physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. We can become a weary and burdened people. And so I hope today that as we look at God's word together, that we can find comfort, that we can practice what the Lord said to us in Psalm 46, verse 10, when he said, be still. Or another way to translate that, cease your striving and know that I am God. I hope that for us today, that we would learn what it is to rest, to battle our busyness. I want to start just by reading Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, um, because this is the, it's a short little passage, three verses, but it's, it's worth hearing just on its own. Just hearing these words of Jesus read over us. So listen to these words and I want to pray for us and we're going to look into this together. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, we thank you for your kindness, for your grace that you have shown us in your son, Jesus. And I pray, God, for all of us in here, help us as we look into your word to battle the busyness in our lives. Help us to cease the striving, to cease feeling like we must perform. Help us to know that you are God. Help us to know your goodness, your love, your grace in our lives. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So this morning, the first thing that I want us to do, I wanna lay a little bit of groundwork in talking about busyness. And it's interesting because as it has been the case in each week of this series that we've gone through, we've had to, out of, just, out of necessity, had to look back at the beginning, had to go back to Genesis. Chad talked about God bringing order out of chaos in Genesis chapter one. Last week, when we talked about the introduction of shame into the world in Genesis two and three, uh, we had to look back at the beginning. And today in looking at busyness, we need to consider the ideas of work and rest. Because again, go back to Genesis chapter one, you read that and you find in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. It was near the end of day six, near the end of day six, that God created mankind and gave him something to do. So you get where this is going? Basically, everything is done in creating the heavens and the earth. And then at the end of day six, you and I come along as God creates mankind. Now look at, look at how it's described here in Genesis 1. I want to read verses uh, 27 and 28 of Genesis chapter 1. It said, so, says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. 
Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So what we see here, this is Genesis 1. Before the fall, before sin came into the world, we were given work to do. Implying that the work, work itself is not bad. It is not an evil. It is a good thing that God has given us. And if you read the type of work that they're given to do, we find that it's important work. It's monumental work. It is oversight. It is dominion over all of creation. That's a big mandate, a big command that the Lord gives the man and the woman right here at the end of Genesis chapter 1. But let's look briefly at what happens right after this, at the beginning of Genesis chapter 2. Let me read verses 1 and 2. It says, So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So day seven here presents us with a very interesting turn of events. Because what did they do on day seven? They all rest. They all rest. Why do they rest? They rest because of what? What does it tell us? It says the work was done. The work was completed. What's so intriguing to me about this is that mankind has clearly been given work to do and it's big work. It's a big task that they have been given. But on their first full day of existence, they do nothing. They honor the Lord by resting with him because the work is complete. They honor the Lord by resting in the glory of a job well done. Work and rest. And yet, remember last week, when I talked about we live in a Genesis 3 world, we live in a fallen world. Because of that, the work became hard and we find ourselves weary with busyness. And as we think about this, this idea of busyness, this thought of, of busyness, I want us to consider two types of busyness. One is a spiritual busyness that we can have and that just concerns our relationship with God how we relate to him, how we relate to him, a spiritual busyness. The other busyness busyness is worldly busyness. Now, when I say worldly here, I'm not talking about it from the standpoint of a a sinful type of worldliness. I'm speaking of it in in a neutral sense here to refer to anything just outside of a direct connection to our relationship with God concerning, this is worldly, concerning all other earthly pursuits, work, family, school, etc. Now, keep in mind, as I talked just a little bit ago about how our spiritual and emotional health have a direct impact um, on our spiritual health, mental, emotional health, direct impact, spiritual health, the same thing is true here, that these intermingle with one another the spiritual and the worldly busyness that we're talking about today. They can't help it because we're, each of us is simply one person. And think about this, because as we've looked at anxiety and shame in the previous two weeks, we can find that both are a busyness of mind and heart. 
With shame, for example, we feel like we've got to perform in order to make up for something. On the other hand, with anxiety, we feel compelled to perform in order to achieve a sense of security or control. It's a busyness of mind and heart and we must battle it. Now, all of that reveals a very big problem that's going on in our lives. And here's the problem. We think too much of ourselves and we think too little of Jesus. And truly, it becomes an assault on God's character. It indicates that perhaps we've believed some lies about him. And it's these lies that we believe that fuel our busyness. And I just wanna, just wanna list out a few of these here. Lies we believe that will lead us and fuel our busyness. For example, possibly we believe that the provision of God is insufficient. We say, God, you haven't given me enough. And if I believe that God's provision is insufficient, well, I've gotta make up for that somehow or another, don't I? So what do I do? I do. I work. If I think that he hasn't met my needs, then I've got to do something about it because I've believed that the provision of God is insufficient. Secondly, perhaps we believe that the work of God is incomplete, that the work of God is incomplete. Have you ever been in a situation where you feel like God just hasn't done enough? or at least not in a timely enough manner. Parents, think, I think about this. Um, I think I've mentioned this before. I've got four daughters. They're 19, 16, nine, and six. So I'm busy. I'm tired. And I want them to act right. Right? I think, it's, I, I think it's beautiful, it's wonderful. I love child dedications. Because what do we do in a child dedication? We commit ourselves as parents to praying, to leading, to guiding. And yet at the end of the day, what we find is as parents, there's only so much that we can do. But have you ever felt as a parent Believe this lie, perhaps, that the work of God is incomplete because you go, I've got my teenage daughter and she hasn't gone off the rails. But man, there's still some things that I wish were different. And you go, God, I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and they're still not where I want them to be. So God, why haven't you done this? Why haven't you finished this work? And so what do we do? We, we grip tighter and tighter and tighter. And we think we're the ones who have to complete the work. Obviously, God, if you're not going to do it, somebody's got to do it. Well, then it's got to be me because I'm the dad. Ever felt that way? It's a lie that we believe that the work of God is incomplete. Another lie that we might believe is that the power of God is unreliable. This can come in in times in which perhaps we see something 
amazing happening in somebody else's life when things that seem not so amazing are happening in our lives. And we're like, God, if you could do it for them, I sure wish you would do it for me. And so God feels undependable, perhaps. His power to flex and to work and to do something in our lives, you go, I just don't know. I've tried to lean into that before and I was let down. He's unreliable. Or perhaps you believe the lie that the love of God is inconsistent. And believing this lie, it may show up when we think or pray something like this, especially in a very difficult time where we go, God, this is just not fair. It's not fair that this is happening to me. I thought you loved me. And yet here I am in this great big mess that just will not change. We believe the lie sometimes that the love of God is inconsistent. Another lie, this last lie that we'll look at, we might believe that the goodness of God is untrustworthy. Have you ever noticed there are times in life that we walk through that just don't make sense? That just don't make sense. And they can lead us to question the goodness of God. Distrust can develop because we go, God, if you're so good, then why is it so bad? Can I really trust the goodness of God? And when we believe these lies, here's what's taking place. When we believe these lies, we assume that there is a deficit that must be made up. And so we become busy because we must rush in to save the day. We start to believe that we're indispensable. Lord, what would you do without all that I bring to the table? Or what would you do without me? But I promise you this, there can be only one end to this way. Depleted joy deflated peace, a busyness of mind, heart, and life that produces weariness. That's the end of believing those lies and acting and living and working and doing according to those lies. But praise the Lord. What we see in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, is that Jesus invites us to a better way of life. I wanna look at these verses, these three verses for the rest of our time this morning. And I, I want us to see the better way of life that Jesus invites us to. And what we have in these verses, it's, it's really, it's one big invitation in two parts. Verse 28 is one part, and then verses 29 and 30 are the second part of this big invitation that Jesus gives to us. And the first part of this invitation that we see in verse 28 is that we are invited to rest in Jesus. Listen to these precious words again. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. The invitation that's in the form of a command here. And the command is what? Come to me. It's the only 
time in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Jesus frames it this particular way. When you see in other places, when he's calling out his disciples, he says, come follow me or come after me, giving off the idea that Jesus is saying, hey, like I'm going this way, come follow me, come after me. In this particular verse, what it, what it appears to be, what appears to be the case is almost like Jesus has seen us. He's seen those who are weary and burdened and he has stopped dead in his tracks and he has looked into your soul and he has said, come to me, come to me. You're weary and burdened, come here and I will give you rest. That's what we get. It's so beautiful. It's what we get when we go to Jesus. We get rest. We get rest. Think of day seven of creation. Adam and Eve given work to do. And on the first full day of their existence, what did they do? They rest. Come to me and I will give you rest. You and I know this pretty well, I think. We, as a culture, as a society, as a people, we will work hard for rest and relaxation, won't we? We will. We will put a lot of effort into relaxing. The vacation and tourism industry in the United States generates over $1 trillion in revenue each year. We spend a lot of money on rest and relaxation. Yet how many of you, when you get home from a trip, and this may be particular, particularly true of those with young children, you get, to the, you get home from your trip and you just mutter the phrase, I need a vacation from my vacation. Ah, oh, you feel that. We get home from our rest feeling more tired than before we left. And yet we work so hard at it. Even our best efforts at rest and relaxation leave us restless and weary. And there's a reason for that. St. Augustine, one of the old church fathers, he wrote a book called Confessions and it's just filled up with essentially an autobiography, but it's filled up with, with prayers of him essentially his confessions are him talking to the Lord. And in one of his prayers, he says this, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Spiritually speaking, or perhaps religiously speaking, one of the common characteristics of the world's religions outside of Christianity is the belief that you must do good works to earn favor, even if you never really know if you've done enough good to actually earn any favor with your God. But one of the unique characteristics of Christianity is that because we couldn't be good enough or do enough good works, Jesus was good and did the good works on our behalf in living his sinless life and then dying a sacrificial death so that we could be forgiven for all the sin that we'd committed. He did it, he died to take away our sin. But y'all, I think to a certain degree in our fallen state, it's just ingrained in us to want to work or to feel like we need to work, that we need to perform, that we need to do something to be 
busy to get approval. I remember my own testimony of coming to Christ as a seven-year-old having a conversation with my dad one night at, at bedtime. And I had heard from him, my dad and mom were still baby Christians at this time, but hearing from him, hearing the gospel from him and my mom and hearing it at church and one night having this conversation with my dad where I go, hey, all right, so what does it take for a person to go to heaven? My dad explained the gospel to me of what Jesus had done in coming to earth and living a sinless life and dying in our place. And that if I would put my trust in him, that I could receive the forgiveness of God and be made right with God. Now, this was astonishing to me, even as a seven-year-old, because my next question was, wait, so I don't have to be good? So I don't have to just do good things in order to get to heaven? That was my next, the very next question after my dad explained the gospel to me as a seven-year-old working and, and performing and doing enough to reach a certain level that drives us to this busyness and this weariness. It's just ingrained in us right now. But Jesus says, come to me, weary and burdened one, and I will give you rest. And I will give you rest. So we're invited to rest in Jesus. In the second part of this invitation, in verses 29 and 30, we are invited to learn from Jesus. Look at what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And again, this is just an extension of the first part of that invitation that we just looked at in verse 28. What Jesus is saying to us is come to me and learn. Come to me and learn. That word learn right there, it's the same word that you find in the gospels that's used for the word, uh, for the title of disciple, where we get our word discipleship from, of what it means to learn and grow in Christ. But look at how Jesus explains this. In this invitation to learn from him, he explains it with the analogy of the yoke. And some of you have probably heard this before. Maybe some of you haven't. But I was, as I was reading and studying this week, one, one commentary that I read explained it pretty well. And so I'm just going to share what this commentator says about this, about what the yoke is and what it's for. The yoke is... It's a heavy wooden bar that fits over the neck of an ox so that it can pull a cart or a plow. The yoke could be put on one animal or it could be shared between two animals. In a shared yoke, one of the oxen would often be much stronger than the other. The stronger ox was more schooled in the commands of the master and so it would guide the other according to its master's commands. By coming into the yoke with a stronger ox, the weaker ox could learn to obey the master's voice. Jesus invites us to share his yoke. He says, I'm yoked, so come, become the second in this yoke. And clearly, we know this, Jesus is the stronger of the two. What's amazing about it is, is that Jesus is telling us, I will bear the weight for you. I'll bear the burden for you. Come to me and learn from me and you'll be the second in the yoke. 
and I will take us where we need to go. That's what he's saying here. And look at what he says about himself. He says, because, so take this yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart. This ought to blow you away because what do we know about Jesus? He's the one who has all authority. He's the sovereign king. He's the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is God himself. He's the creator of the universe. Yet he came to us in gentleness and humility. That's how he says. That's, that's the one with whom we yoke ourselves when we come to Jesus. And he tells us all this. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now I ask a question when I see this and it's how am I to understand this in light of other things that Jesus says? Even in the book of Matthew, take Matthew 16, 24, for example, Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now that doesn't sound easy at all. That sounds like a death sentence, actually. But here's what Jesus is letting us know. Here's his point in, in saying all of this. He's telling us each and every one of you is yoked to something. In other words, we're all be, being discipled by someone or something. You may be being discipled by the world, by your job, by your friends, by entertainment, by social media. You may be being made into a disciple of those things or we can be disciples of Jesus. But, his, but he's saying here, any other yoke, any other yoke other than his, other than coming under, up under his yoke will eventually crush you, overwhelm you, it will kill you. It will leave you weary and burdened. It can do no other. So he says, and that's what he means by my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He invites us to join him in his yoke. While he is clearly much stronger than us, he reassures us that because of his gentleness and humility, he will not crush us. He will give us rest. But y'all think about this. This is the way of Jesus, isn't it? To take something that, that on the surface seems counterintuitive because he takes an instrument, a yoke, it's typically used for oxen and it's grueling work. It's hard work that the oxen are doing. And he takes this instrument that is typically used for that and he uses it in order to give us rest. But he did the same thing with the cross, didn't he? He took what was an instrument of death and he used it to give us life. That's the way of Jesus and that's the life that he invites us into, to come to him and to learn from him and he will not crush us. As Isaiah 42 says, a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out because he's good, he's kind, he's gracious, he's gentle, and he's humble. And he calls us out 
of our spiritual busyness of thinking that we've got to do more for his approval. He calls us out of worldly busyness, of being discipled by the world to come to him and he will give us rest. Listen to these words from an 1800s Scottish hymn that's titled, It Is Finished. Till to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Do you want to battle busyness? Then go to Jesus, rest in him, learn from him. Instead of believing the lies, believe the truth that he is the provider of all that you need, that he will complete all the work that he sets out to do, that his power never diminishes, that his love is steadfast and faithful, that his goodness never fades. Vaughn Forest Church, lay down your busyness. And I invite you right now, and it's the same invitation as we prepare to sing a song of response to what we've heard in God's word today. It's the same invitation that Jesus gives. Come to him, come to him. He's lowly, he's humble. He will not crush you. He will give you rest, rest for your soul. And if you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in Jesus before, what you've heard, you've heard some good news about what Jesus has done for us. So for you who haven't trusted in Christ, cease your striving, come to Jesus. He lived a sinless life that none of us could live. He died in our place so that if you will put your trust in him, if you will turn from your sin, trust in Christ, he is ready to save you. He will not crush you. He will receive you and you will receive rest. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing in response. Lord, we thank you for the rest that you give, that in battling our business, in our busyness, Lord, we find that you have already won all of these battles. We can rest. So Lord, help us rest. Help us to repent of our busyness and thinking that we can add to your work and thinking that we can do better than you. Lord, help us to lay all that down. Help us to turn from it and to find rest for our souls and for our weary and tired bodies. Lord, lead us and guide us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.